Hey, good morning, everyone. We're going to have some folks coming in. Uh, and we've got some new folks. I want you to say hi to them when the time's right. So there they are, Charlie and Cheney and Maxine. Yo, Maxine. Oh, my goodness. So they'll be piling. Here's Jenna Mena. All is good. All is good. Jenna Mena's here. So um, welcome, everyone. Uh, those online, thank you for logging on with us or if you're on the app. Uh, thank you for being here. If you're on the app and you've got a question or want to interact with us, text Stephen. Text Stephen and that will we'll, uh, get it started. So we've got lots of things going on. May is a busy month because we're wrapping up the school year and all that stuff. But a lot of fundraisers are going on. So there's a movie coming up called The Harbinger. And it is going to be on May 12, one showing only. If you're interested in that movie with Jonathan Kahn, see um, that young lady right there named Janice. Janice. She's extremely shy. And see Janice. And she'll help you with uh, tickets and things. Um, also, on May uh, 14, there's a major fundraiser for a drug and alcohol recovery ministry called John 316 Cure. And they've got Zach Williams coming in. And Zach's song, Chainbreaker, was written, co-authored by one of the kids that used to be in a youth group of mine at Central Baptist years ago. And I know it's hard to believe I'm that old, but it is true. I am that old. So uh, Jonathan Smith and Zach teamed up. And Jonathan's done an amazing job in writing and has won actually several Dove Awards. So also May 1, Walk for the Waiting fundraiser to help kids uh, get foster homes in Arkansas. All right, uh, big cookout coming up Saturday the 7th. Gonna have a great time, you'll hear more about that. All right, I'm excited. I am so excited about getting into uh, what the New Testament says about the Eucharist, about the Lord's Supper. It's such a big, big deal. And before I jump straightway in, I wanna ask God's favor. Lord, I love you and I thank you for the way you show your kindness. And I ask for a lot of love and grace right now to be made real to all of us. Faith, hope, and love are anchor points. We need you desperately. And I ask you to speak deeply to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, I am featuring my cell phone, all right? If you have a question about the Lord's Supper, uh, also known as the Eucharist, also known as communion, I want you to text me. It's okay, you're not going to bother me. Text me and say, hey, Chris, what about this? What about the, the blood and the, and the bread, uh, or the wine, rather? You know, do they, is there a change in substance? You know, the bread becomes the body and all those things. I want you to feel free to text me a question. Um, I believe the Lord's Supper is really, really sacred. Now, i got to say, Lisa, I wanted to bust right into Exodus. We just finished Genesis. We spent, what, a year? We spent a long time in Genesis. It's been fantastic, and I love the stories and, uh, and I thought, oh, man, let's go right to Exodus. Let's talk about Moses. And by the way, there's some folklore, folklore about the woman who found Moses in a basket, baby Moses, and that she became a follower of Yahweh, follower of God. Some real cool stories back there. So, and, and the great Exodus and the 10 plagues and let my people go and all that stuff. Uh, We'll, we'll get to that someday. That would be great to teach that. But uh, the Lord's Supper, absolutely critical. So I've got lots of pictures. By the way, no cool stories today, all right? And it's going to feel a bit academic, all right? So bear with me.
because I think we, we've got to lay a foundation to get this stuff. So, so let's begin with this. Uh, this is the shot of a Greek Orthodox uh, mass, their version of uh, church. And look how ornate that is. Look at the, the gold and the gilded everything and the icons. It's a big, big deal what's going on there. All right, here's a shot of the Catholic mass. Um, why Why is the, the priest holding up the cup like that? Why? Why do you think? What's that? Um, yes, actually uh, getting ready to give the words of consecration. Okay, in the Catholic tradition, when the priest says, when he lifts up the host and he says, this is my body, Bammo, it becomes the flesh of Jesus. When he holds up the cup and he says, this is the blood, Bammo, can you snap? That's pretty cool. You can snap. Bam. And when he holds the cup up and that, that wine turns instantly to the blood of Jesus. Okay, we'll comment about that just a little bit. So, and then look, look, just an old boring Baptist service right there. How boring is that? Look, and every, no fancy clothes or nothing. Boy, we really pulled it back, people. And uh, so, wow, there's a huge difference. The ornate, the robes and the hat and all the clothing, all the accoutrements. And then, and then you know, I come from a, a, my early years as a Catholic in Massachusetts and then a Protestant for goodness, you know, decades and decades. And, and Stephen Linda, how many times have you seen those tricks? You know, okay. Lots and lots and lots. So, all right. So somebody's got to be right and somebody's got to be wrong about all this stuff, right? Who gets it right? And um, by, as, as I mentioned to you guys, I'm digging into a very, very serious paper. Uh, it should get published on academia.edu in the next few months, uh, but it's a lot of work. And, and the teaching will be uh, drawn from that. All right. Leonardo da Vinci, one of the most famous paintings of all times. Absolutely famous. So a couple of bits of trivia about that. Uh, there's actually very few actual strokes by Leonardo on that painting because time has worn it away. There's been some damage due to a war and the building shook and all kinds of things. So there's actually... Very few of the original strokes left, but there's been a lot of restorations and putting paint over the paint and over the paint. Um, has any, does anybody know what the real controversy is about the painting? Any, any, any Tom, Tom Hanks fans here? Who, yeah, John looks very feminized. Something's going on, people. So who is that gal? Uh, Mary Magdalene. By the way, they're wearing a necklace and a pendant and have a very feminized appearance. So it has been argued that that's Mary Magdalene. But if that's the case, the dude with the darker hair and the darker beard, uh, that means that's not Judas because there's 12 people. And if that's Mary and not John, for example... Uh, or, or rather, that is Mary, then, then that is not Judas, and so it's someone else. So, but lots of mystery there. Sounds like the makings of a good movie, The Da Vinci Code. Let's talk about some vocab real quick, uh, uh, just kind of get you, get you started. 
The bread and the wine refer to literally the body and the blood of Jesus. The bread uh, that we're going to look at today is unleavened bread, and the wine was, in fact, wine. Communion, uh, the word communion is not in the Bible. It's not in there. The word communion literally is from Latin, and it's that which is shared as in community. That idea, Eucharist, from two words, you, which means good, and charis, which means joy or grace or thanks. Jesus took the bread and he gave thanks. He broke it and said, Eucharist, or Eucharisteo, which means giving thanks. Uh, if you're in the Catholic tradition or the, the Greek Orthodox tradition, the word Eucharist refers to the sacred ritual of taking the bread and taking the wine as an act of worship. The Last Supper is what Jesus led. The Lord's Supper is what the Apostle Paul led. They are not the same. They're two different, two different events. Let's talk about presence of Christ and the bread and the wine uh, in the Catholic tradition, which is identical to the uh, Greek Orthodox position, when the priest announces, this is my body, or this is the blood of the covenant, at that moment, if you're a Catholic, the substance is transformed, transubstantiation. It becomes the flesh of Jesus. Right. John 6, if you don't eat my flesh, if you don't drink my blood. You have no part in me. And we have to take John, John 6 very, very seriously. When the priest announces this is the blood, bam, right then and there, it becomes the blood of Jesus. That position is called transubstantiation. Some people began to say, hmm, doesn't make sense. And so, so this idea formed called consubstantiation. All right? And that means that if I'm holding the wafer, right, that, that the flesh of Jesus is around it, under it, over it, behind it, all around it, but it's not, that, but it's not necessarily it. It's all around it, but it's not it. Over, under, behind, all these things, okay? That's called consubstantiation. And then you have uh, the spiritual view. By the way, the spiritual view... Uh, would be like your Reformed, your high Calvinist churches, your Reformed churches, meaning that something spiritual happens, something deeply spiritual. But the bread and the wine uh, or the grape juice for a lot of Protestant traditions who don't consume alcohol, the grape juice stays grape juice and the bread stays bread. But there's this deep spiritual thing that happens. The, symbolic, the, the symbolism view, the symbolic view, which is uh, developed by a guy named Zwingli, Ulrich Zwingli, cool name. Uh, Ulrich said, no, it's just a symbol. Come on, people, let's, let's rein this thing in. It's just a symbol. And uh, that's what a lot of, like Southern Baptist traditions, uh, Matt, Church of Christ tradition, sim, what did it say, symbolic? Yeah, yeah, it seems to be the case for most, most Protestant churches. So uh, sacerdotalism and sacramentalism, big, big deal here, uh, people. So work with me on this. A sacrament is when you're going to take the bread and the wine or the grape juice and something happens. Okay. For example, um, 
this electronic piece of equipment, right? This thing without an energy supply is just a, a dead piece of electronic equipment. But you plug it in, it lights up, things turn on, and it works. Does this make sense? Okay. Bear with, with me on this. When you take the bread and the wine, and if you believe it's a sacrament, you're getting plugged into God. Something happens. God sends you something. And that something is called grace. Okay? It actually imparts grace to you. It's a sacrament. Something special happens. It's not just, well, let's just remember and reflect. Let's just think about this. No, it goes way past remembering, reflecting. Something mystical happens. God infuses, injects, connects. There's a touch point, and you experience God's grace. In fact, it can go so far as to say you begin to experience salvation. Salvation. Right. Now, sacerdotalism means, by the way, if that is true, if a sacramental view is true, and, and you get God through that sacrament, you experience God, who's going who's gonna to control it? That's pretty powerful. Isn't that the Holy Grail? Right? Can you, can you harness that power if there's something spiritual, almost magical that happens? Sacramentalism. Who's going to control it? Well, the Catholic Church and the Greek Orthodox said, oh my goodness, that kind of power couldn't fall in the hands of the commoners. That'd be terrible. Only the most holy people could be allowed to dispense the, the bread and the wine. And so guess what? Sacerdotalism is only an ordained priest is allowed to give out the, and dispense of the bread and the wine. Makes sense? Does anybody get the idea of monopoly? How's that for a power move? That's a big deal, right? Now, in a way, in a way, um, I kind of don't blame them. If you believe it is that powerful, you need to protect it, right? You can't cheapen it and reduce it down to some, like, hey, you want to go to Sonic and get a burger? I mean, it's not like we're going to Go get some junky fast food from Taco Bell. We want to go get, you know, take some bread and wine. No, it's not some cheap nothing, you know. But on the other extreme, it's so sacred and so powerful that it's like you get plugged into God when you do that, and it can bring grace to you and even affect salvation. That's called sacramentalism. Wow. I mean, if you really believe that, you've got to protect it, and that's where the priesthood comes in, right? Got to protect it. Big deal. All right. Words of institution. You'll hear that a little bit. That's literally what Jesus said. And he took some bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body. And he took a cup and he said, this is the new covenant in my blood. Those are, quote unquote, the words of institution. All right. Oh, fun maps. We're in Bible class. This is great. Here we go. <laughs> Bear with me. Constantinople. Big deal. Lots happened there. Nicaea, whoa, a lot happened there. You'll find out in a bit. And Rome, oh, the seat of power for the Catholic Church. Ooh. Okay, got it? All right, there'll be a pop quiz at the end of the, end of the class, by the way. Be ready. All right, let's look at the big picture of Christianity. The big picture. Can you guys get this one? The ministry of Jesus, that's easy. We locked it down. 80-30, 80-33. Three years of ministry. He's arrested the crucifixion, the resurrection, 
and then the ascension. All right, well, what happened after that? Well, this is the period when apostles started writing down what happened and what he said. And that period, I'm putting up the boundaries of AD 45 to AD 85. Some New Testament scholars push it later, 8090, 8095, and I say it's too late. So we'll go with those parameters. This is when the New Testament was written. All right? Now guess what happens to the apostles, Janice? What happens to them after a while? What's happening? Yeah. Lee just gave the, yeah, this. Yes, it's bad. They're starting to be persecuted. They're starting to be executed. Or they're aging out. Okay, John is the one that particularly ages out and, and dies a more noble death, uh, apparently on the island of Patmos, possibly was allowed to come back in after exile. All right, so there's an urgency. Hey, we've got to write this stuff down. All right, what happens after that? You have the apostolic fathers. These are the people. Can you imagine uh, being discipled by the apostle Paul or being a disciple of the apostle John? John dies off and you're in his place. You're it. Wow, you're the next in line. That's what this is. These are the dudes that are next. Clement, Polycarp, Ignatius, Papias, Quadratus. These are the folks that took the gospel to the next generation. All right? And they became the great leaders of the church. Immediate disciples of the apostles or second generation disciples of the apostles. Now what? Aristides, Justin Martyr, Tatian, all these dudes, they became the apologists. Pop quiz, what does the word apology mean? It has nothing to do with saying you're sorry. What does the word apology mean? To give a defense. To give a defense. Ap, if you're into Latin and Greek, ap means from logos, logic. To speak logically, from logic. To give a defense. To defend your faith. These are brilliant, brilliant people that began to say, we've got to defend, we've got to defend the gospel. Guess what was happening by uh, the local pagans who were getting really upset about this growing thing called Christianity? Well, they started to accuse and slander Christian faith and Jesus. They said all kinds of terrible things about, about Christians. They said they're cannibals. And they do these weird secret things in these little meetings called love feasts at night. That's weird. And they started saying all kinds of accusatory things about, about Christians. And they said it's all, it's all smoke and mirrors. It's all fake. And so the Christians said, no, it's not. And they began to make a defense about what it means to follow Jesus. One of the things Rome did is they began to blame Christians for starting the fire, for the reason why Rome fell, all this stuff. Okay. Look at these guys, the church fathers. Now, these guys are getting the church ready for this long haul. And they're helping lead and establish doctrine. And then lastly, the seven ecumenical councils. What does ecumenical mean? It applies to everybody. All right? It's the common ground that applies to everybody. All right? The seven ecumenical councils. Big, big deal. You heard about that just a second. All right, look at this timeline. This is fascinating. By the way, this is from a Greek Orthodox perspective. And I, by the way, agree with it historically. This is really spot on. Really, really good stuff. All right, notice a couple things. You can see um, 
you can see this period, Pentecost hits, the church is born. Justin Martyr writes his defense. Justin Martyr is the first guy to write or comment about the Eucharist in a liturgical way. You're going to hear the word litur- liturgy a lot. That means a special order or a special way of doing the Lord's Supper. All right. And if you've ever seen the Catholic liturgy or the, uh, the Orthodox liturgy, it is this massive thing. You know, it's like if you took the words of institution, this bread, broken, broken bread is my body for you. This blood is the new covenant in my, uh, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is given for you. We're done. They take the mass and they blow it up into this massive, massive thing. All right. So Justin's the first guy to write about things are starting to take shape. All right. By the way, this is the apostolic church, also known as the Orthodox Greek Church. Do you realize the Catholic Church split off of them? Do you understand? And that is called the Great Schism of 1054. A lot of folks are not aware of that. The first church, please hear me. The first church is not the Catholic Church. It's the Greek Orthodox. Okay. And, and Lee and Edie, the church that Paul was a part of in Antioch, all right, which we're moving north out of Jerusalem, where we're not speaking Hebrew or Aramaic, we're speaking Greek. The church moves forward, but goes up. It's the Greek Orthodox Church, which is the original church. Their claim is amazing to their history. And it's the Catholics that broke off of them in what is known as the Great Schism. What did they fight about? What was going on? Number one, the political and religious power between bishops. Pope wars. You could make a a, a great TV series about this. I'm the Pope. No, you're not. I'm the Pope. Well, I'm more Pope than you. Prove it. Okay. And this huge fight broke out. True story. The Pope dude in Rome got so put out with the Pope dude in Constantinople, he said to that Pope, I excommunicate you. You're not allowed to take the Eucharist. Bad if you're, if you're into the liturgy, because that's where you get God, get plugged into God real quick. And he goes, oh, yeah, well, I'm going to excommunicate you. Bam. So we have got a Pope war going on. And boy, was it political. And it was powerful. Do you appreciate having a monopoly on the Eucharist and what that, how that controls people? That's a lot of power. Lots of power. And with that power, that religious power, comes political power. And boy, did it become a big deal. All right, next. Uh, this is interesting. They had a war over unleavened or leavened bread. That was a part of the fight. Sir. So, which one is it? Unleavened or leavened? Unleavened? You say unleavened? I knew you'd say that. I knew you'd say that. So, anybody? Uh, yeah, Margaret. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter as long as it's bread. Okay. All right. So. <laughs> what'd you say? Yams work too. Yeah, yeah. Remember that? Yeah, you hear the yam of life. It's a translator issue from. Uh, from Wycliffe Bible Translators. So, well, guess what? The, the, uh, <laughs> appreciate the history. The original Greek Orthodox Church used only leavened bread. Leavened. 
Yes, not unleavened. Leavened, why? Jesus is the bread of life. That's why. The everyday bread. Bread of life. And we're not Jews observing Passover. When did Paul, for, when did Paul force Jewish dietary laws on Gentile converts? He didn't. No, it's leavened bread. It's the bread of life. And they would observe this daily, right? And the the Catholics said, no, it's unleavened because that's Jesus got this thing started and it was during Passover and they used unleavened bread. Well, that's worth fighting over. Man, and they got into it. They're excommunicating. They're fighting leavened, unleavened, leavened, unbreaded. Shut up. And then number three, doctrinal discrepancies about the Nicene Creed and getting it just right. And we'll, we'll look at that. And then the right of priest to marry. Can I just say that's one of the dumbest things the Catholic Church has ever done? Can I just get that out there? Man, the message that could be avoided if priests could marry. And I absolutely think they should. Uh, so the Catholic said, nope, got to be a celibate. And the Greek Orthodox says, nope, you have a right to marry. Things worth fighting over. All right. We're almost there. (coughs) Excuse me. Well, I left my coffee somewhere. (laughs) The anointing just left. (laughs) The anointing's gone. Caffeine. All right. Remember that period of seven ecumenical councils? (laughs) Thank you for laughing, Chelsea. Um... That means we've got to figure something out. We've got to settle this issue. These are big issues. Issue number one, this was at the Council of Nicaea, the first one at Nicaea. Jesus is co-equal and co-substantive with God. What do you think that means? Jesus is co-equal and co-substantive with God. What does it mean, Margaret? Excuse me. He's God. The same stuff. He's made of the same stuff that God is made of. And he has the same level of power that God does. Co-equal and of the same stuff. Right? Do you see anything about the Holy Spirit? Nope. Trinity hasn't been formed yet. Isn't that amazing? How about this one? That was 8325, by the way. Um, and now they go, hey, what about the Holy Spirit? And so they now they affirm the deity of the Holy Spirit, that he's God, too, and a part of the Godhead. Things are forming. By the way, this is stuff we take for granted every day. And it's like, eh, no big deal. Oh, really? There are people fighting and dying over these beliefs. Right. Look at this one. Mary is the mother of God. That doctrine formed. Is that important? What do you think? Actually, it is, Simone. Was Jesus sinless? Yes. All right, all of us here, are we, are we born of Adam and Eve? Was the sin nature of Adam and Eve transferred onto us? So are we born in sin? Yep. Okay, so that means that the baby in Rebecca's womb and Chelsea's womb is evil? And sinful and born in sin? Right? Are we going to push it here? 
Are we going, no, they're too cute. They can't have sin. They're babies. They're precious. They're precious little babies. Okay? Well, we have, we have to deal with this stuff, right? And so, yeah, we're born in sin. And that means that innocent baby is born in sin. Ouch. Kind of don't like that one, huh? Still guilty before God. In sin. In Adam. You're the prophet. What are you talking about? Mercy. Oh, my goodness. All right. So, all right, Janice. Here, here we go. Ready? So, was Jesus born that way? Ah. All right. So, Phyllis says, no. There's an exception. How did that happen? Ah. There's only one way to explain that one. Mary's the other exception. Ah, so now Mary is elevated as being the mother of God. And you have what is called the virgin birth. And so Mary is seated in heaven in a position of tremendous honor and can even hear your prayers. In Chalcedon, affirm the two natures of Christ, fully God, fully man. That's a struggle. If he's fully God and he's not man at all, then what's the big deal about his suffering? What's the big deal about temptation? It becomes nothing. If he's fully man and not God at all, then bless his heart, what a mess, but still an amazing guy. And so they argued he had to be both, okay? Constantinople II, they reaffirmed, reconfirmed the definition of the Holy Trinity now. ah. 553, we're finally settling up on the Trinity. All right. What about this one? They clarified the humanity of Jesus again and his human will. Last one, um, confirm the icons are valid medium for faith. The second council of Nicaea. Do you guys know what icons are? What are icons? Statues. They're what? Statues. Statues, would you say? Yes, statues are the saints. Exactly. Anybody else on icons? We got the idea. Big elaborate crosses, artwork, stained glass, all this stuff. Yes? They were just taking that from their pagan culture, right? Well, uh, that certainly is a part of pagan culture. Absolutely. And so remember, we're wanting to get plugged into the outlet of God, right? We want God to zap us with, with some God. We want, we want God to give us some God. We get to get plugged in. And they believed the ultimate way to experience God is through the Eucharist. But they also believed that these, these icons could actually, God, would, the Holy Spirit would use that to stir up within you faith. Okay? All right. I want to do one more. Let's talk about the lateral council. This is important. It's called Lateran because it was done in Rome at the Lateran Palace. Okay, this elaborate place. That council was defined, defined and authorized the doctrine of transubstantiation. That took place in 1215. Well over a thousand years from the time that Jesus sat with his disciples at the Last Supper. 1100 plus years later, the church believes in transubstantiation. And they nailed that one down, all right? They also believed in papal primacy, the Pope represents God on earth. He is the supreme figurehead on earth. And they also got ready for the fifth crusade fighting against Muslims. 
Wow. You are a part of this history. All right, so what about us? <laughs> We're not Catholics. We are not Greek Orthodox. What about us as Protestants who are really uniquely committed to the Lord Jesus Christ and committed to the New, New Testament? Let's look at this. <clears throat> Thank you, by the way, for working through that with me. I know it's hard. This is Matthew's tradition on the Last Supper. I want you to read it. In yellow, we have the words of institution. Pay attention to it. I'm going to ask you some pop quizzes. Lance, could you shut down this bank of lights? I want them to see this clearly. <clears throat> Thank you, sir. I know that's going to make it a little easier for you to read. Okay. Look at that. What do you notice already? Historically, what's going on? Passover. Passover, absolutely. And by the way, Passover starts an entire week-long festival known as the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Right? Big deal. Okay, what else do you notice? Verse 22 being deeply grieved, they began saying to him and each other, surely it is not I. Jesus said there's going to be a betrayal action. Someone's going to betray him. And this is why Leonardo depicts uh, the disciples around the table in this, this kind of a shocked expression. It's kind of, what does he mean? Okay. What do you notice about the words of institution? Jennings? Well, he says, he doesn't say this represents my body. He says, this is my body. Yes. <clears throat> this is, yes. Yeah. Yeah. By the way, Jesus would be speaking Aramaic and he wouldn't say the word is. He would not. He would just say, this, my body. That's what he would say in Aramaic Hebrew. Right out the cup and he'd say this. New covenant. Yeah. Do you see the command to repeat the ritual? Where's the command to repeat it? Ah, <laughs> uh, sneaky, sneaky, yeah. If you stick with the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, Luke, you're right, Lisa. There's no command to repeat it at all. Not at all. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what else do you notice? <laughs> yes. Thank you, Linda. This is about the forgiveness of sins with the blood. Uh, is it, um, did, Jesus eat, did Jesus teach and give a meal? And then at the end, he tags it with, okay, here's a loaf of bread and here's some wine. Let me talk about these two things. How does he do it? Bless it. What's that? 
Yeah, yeah, but let's think about the event. Is, in, in this circle is the event of the Passover meal. Does Jesus observe the Passover? And then when it's done, he goes, oh, by the way, here's some bread. Uh, breaks it, this is my body. Here's a cup, this is a new covenant in my blood. Two separate things going on. Is that what happens? It says wild. Who said no? It says wild. Wild. So they're, they're, it's integrated in the meal. So in that instance, Ed, to take the Lord's Supper takes a long time. It's not a little 30-second little thing you do. Okay? It's integrated into the meal. So it's very, it's very complex at this point. It's part of a meal. All right? How about this? This is Mark's tradition. <clears throat> the same things, very Jewish. Feast of unleavened bread, Passover, etc. They're reclining. Anybody notice anything about Mark's gospel? Anything? It's a very similar wording, by the way. Okay. He describes the, um, what Jesus tells him to do differently. How so? Yes, Mark does that. Even though it's the shorter of the gospel, the shorter of the three, but Margaret, that's great. You picked up on that. It's fascinating what Mark does. Absolutely. So while they're eating, he took some bread, right? Okay. Let's look at Luke's tradition. Luke is very detailed in, in so many ways. Very similar, unleavened bread. There's a man carrying a pitcher of water. By the way, ladies, do men carry water in this culture? No. Do you know that whole thing was a setup, by the way? That whole thing was a setup. The guy carrying the pitcher of water was an unnamed disciple. And they were trying to slip in at night. By the way, it's actually the night before uh, the sacrifice of the, pass of the lambs trying to sneak in before that and do this at night because Jesus is he's a hunted man at this point and the disciples are too. So they're sneaking in at night to do this and they did a setup with a guy who agreed to carry some water, by the way. How many cups are there in Luke's gospel? Who said one? Look closely, look closely. Look at the words of institution. How does it begin? Begins with a cup. All right. How does it end? With the second cup. There's two in Luke's tradition. So it's a three part. Yeah, isn't it fascinating? By the way, if we're going to be good Jews and we're going to do the Passover meal, how many cups of wine do we have? Four. Four. We have four cups. Okay. Absolutely. All right. <clears throat> I know it's getting late and I've got to, I want to tie this off. So first of all, the Last Supper and the Lord's Supper are not the same. Secondly, the Last Supper was integrated with the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Three, there's no command to repeat the ritual. Did you know that in the very immediate years after the resurrection and the ascension, they did the Lord's Supper once a year. 
Get your mind around that one. They did it once a year, annually, during Passover. Why? Because that's what Jesus did. For Jesus and the disciples ate unleavened bread. The Greek word sloan for, for bread is artos. Artos. But it's, it's a generic word. So unleavened and leaven can be artos. Okay? But azumas, azumas is the specific word for unleavened bread. In all three synoptics where it says Jesus took some bread... You know, if you're a good Catholic, you want that word to be a zumas unleavened. But guess what? God throws curveballs. I love it. It's not. It's artas. It's just a generic word for bread. Yeah. Uh, it'd be a whole lot easier for Catholics if it, just, if it said the other word, but it doesn't. But guess what? We know it was unleavened. Why? Because it's the Passover, and it says it's the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So we know that that's exactly what it was. Okay. Uh, Jesus and the disciples drank wine. It was diluted with a one-to-three ratio. One part wine, three parts water. Why did they do that? Two reasons. It was really strong to begin with. No. Sanitary. Sanitary reasons. It helps sanitize the water. And what did you say, Stephen? Just make sure there's enough and it makes it, it takes the very expensive product and, and makes it last longer. Exactly. Um, what is the intended meaning of the bread and the wine? Well, the bread is the body of Jesus. The blood is the new covenant. In, in, it's referred to in Exodus 24. Mark said, this is my blood of the covenant. Matthew says, same thing, this is my blood of the covenant. But Luke said, this is the new covenant in my blood. All right. You're the body of Christ. I know we, we've got just a little bit of time. Questions? What are your thoughts? Anybody questions about this and about, about the Last Supper or the Lord's Supper? Anything? I have a comment online. Yes. Uh, so, if, so, go down this, everyone. Uh, if Catholics truly believe that elements become Jesus, why don't some of the pregnant women decline the communion wine? Um, does that mean the priest creates Jesus or summons Jesus as shamans, as shamans summon spirits? Well, um, if we're going to be hating on the Catholics, and I, and I use that in a humorous but not so humorous way, uh, because the Catholic Church uh, in many, many ways deserves the criticism they get. Okay? And I can say that because I'm coming out of that. I came out of that years and years ago. But there's a problem with monopolizing the Lord's Supper. There really is a problem, right? And um, uh, let, me, let me put it this way. When you go to church as a Catholic, what do you go to? What is the service called? Mass. Mass. Okay, right. What is the Mass? What is the one thing you do? Why are you there? It's the Eucharist. That's it. Like, you know, we, we as a family, we walked through Genesis, right? That doesn't happen during the Mass at all. There's no other teaching. You don't teach about, about how to have a good marriage in Jesus' name. You don't teach how to raise your kids. You don't teach any of that stuff. You do one thing and one thing only, the Eucharist. That's it. 
That's the Catholic Mass. Guess what? That's the Greek Orthodox service as well. It's one, you're there for one thing, to take the bread and to take the wine. Why? Because that's where you get plugged into God. And that's, where, that's when you experience grace and you even, it births salvation in you. Yeah, that's what they do. Protestants come at it completely differently and the Protestants say, it is about the word of God. From Genesis to Revelation, you can even add maps. It's about the word of God. It's all of it. That's what the service is about. And the Eucharist is an add-on to that. And the Catholics and the Greek Orthodox say, no, it's the Eucharist only. It's the Mass. Makes sense? Okay. That's a lot of power, Stephen. <clears throat> Lots of power. And with that, uh, they, there's a lot of criticism that, that they can be targeted for. So, no, they don't conjure. No, they're not shaman-like or witch doctor-like at all. Uh, a lot of it comes out of centuries of traditions that, quite frankly, we don't fully appreciate as Protestants who have a 30-second reel brain. Uh, we just think in 30-second reels now. And we don't want to pay attention and bother to dig into this stuff. No, they're not shamans. Uh, I think they mean well. I think they're very misled. And unfortunately, very, very misinformed. And I, yes, I dare say that. Um, and the abuses that kind of come out of that. Um, but here's what I like. Can I say that I like something about that all? I like that they don't take the, the wafer and the bread and they drop it down to fast food at Taco Bell. I like that. Because you can cheap it. Well, you, you can say, well, it's just a symbol. It's all it is. Okay, great. Gotcha. But how low can we go on it? Is it like, well, it's just nothing. It's just bread. You know, it's just some juice. It's all it is. I think if we do that, we're as guilty as, as overvaluing it. To undervalue the Lord's Supper is wrong. To overvalue it is wrong. Paul writes, there's one mediator between God and man. The Lord Jesus Christ. The bread and the, the wine are not the, the, the outlet. We're not going to plug into the outlet through the bread and the wine and get God power. That's not how it works. But to say that it's some mindless, meaningless ritual that we go through is horribly wrong. Horribly wrong and disrespectful. So, uh, Someone else, a comment. And I, I realize I went too long on that. Somebody else. Why does this matter? Lisa. Yes, yes, yes. So, um, Lisa, you and we have other friends over at our house, uh, then there's nothing wrong with me and Lisa guiding the Lord's Supper. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely, yeah. It doesn't have to be in a church service, no. Not at all. And there doesn't have to be a pastor present, by the way, at all. And we'll, and we'll demonstrate that from the book of Acts. But later on. Anybody else about the Lord's Supper? Anybody else? Yes. Yes. Yeah, yeah. We've missed it in so many ways. And um, here's the thing. 
Let me speak very frankly. Uh, for many, many people who, who are Christians and many in name only, uh, they don't even want to bother to read God's word, to really read it. They don't want to bother. They want a fast food service with a fast food pastor that can give out a 30 second reel that makes them laugh or there's something slightly edgy in it so it'll keep their attention and, and spit out a couple of things, a little self-help religion and they're on their way. Add some smoke machines and we might even have some goosebumps. I'm just telling you, that's not Jesus. That's not the early followers of Jesus at all. So to dig into the truth is work. And we might find it that, like Sloan, maybe we get it wrong. Maybe there's some things we need to adjust at Christ Church. Right? This is a big deal, Lisa. What if you don't have the handbook of bread and wine or juice? Yeah. And somebody says, well, we're going to Yeah. Yeah, thank you. Pop-Tarts would be the preferred <laughs> second option. I'm just saying, Dale, Jenna, you understand the way for the, yeah. So, um, did you know that it is Catholic doctrine that it must be wheat? The unleavened bread must come from wheat. No other form is acceptable, you know. And then, and I go, well, that's that's crazy, because barley was the common wheat, the common grain of the poor. So, yeah. So the answer is yes. If, the pressure, it be able to take it yeah, yeah, I know. <laughs> what if the disciples had were gluten intolerant? That just messes everything up. You know, wait, wait, Jesus, wait. Is that gluten free? You know. he, he would then bless it, and it wouldn't have any problems. Yes, you know. <laughs> Or they're actually like a part of a cult movement, like my daughter Becca, where they're actually trying to take over the world and control everything with the gluten-free agenda. I'm just kidding. I love you, baby girl. Love you, baby girl. So, um, Lisa, Ritz crackers and water, just fine. It's the heart, isn't it? It's the heart. It really is. But... It, it pushes things, right? It pushes the metaphor. If we're going to try to stay close to the original, right? Well, if you, if you crack the door and say Ritz crackers and water's fine, you know, or a Pop-Tart and Kool-Aid, you know, you're, you're bumping out. You're, you're moving away. Now, are there exceptions? Absolutely. Would I do that with, with, with a saltine cracker and water? I would do it. Absolutely do that. Um, but when we have these things available, and I mean real wine or grape juice or, or bread, unleavened or leavened bread, absolutely, let's use that. Why? Because it comes closest to uh, what actually happened in the first century worlds. But I don't want to be so legalistic to miss the point at all. And I'll explain about Rome uh, and the Rome apartment buildings, the, the slum houses in Rome, and how they would take the Lord's Supper. We'll get to that. Anybody else? Question? I think that there, as we do this, and, and in the context of this, go back through history or view the history, and and even the, the issues of differing opinions and differing ideas, um, 
I think there's a value in pausing for a moment and going, you know, there's a real value in considering that we are a part of a long and rich tradition yes. of recognizing Christ's sacrifice for us through this act. Yes. And um, I think that there is a value in experiencing some of the other traditions form of this. Yes. Yes. And seeing the richness yeah. that they that different traditions place. Yes. I yeah. think one of the deep dangers that we can get into is um, and I experienced a lot of this uh, through years um, working in and therefore examining and looking at various forms of, um, of our faith over the last several years. Um, there would be a real danger in going, well, finally we have it right. Oh, yeah, the arrogance of that. Yeah. Absolutely. And yeah. As opposed to, you know, what other tradition, you know, yeah. the ways it's been done through the centuries. Yeah. Centuries. Yeah. Yeah. Millennia um, of doing this. Um, but there's a value in going and in, in, in experiencing the richness of yes. of an Orthodox tradition and yeah. how serious and yeah. important. Yeah, exactly. It is exactly. In that yeah, and, that's and, so good. Yeah, and, and the, the you know the reading and, and in incorporation of scripture into the and, and all of those kinds of things into that. Yeah. Moment. Yeah, it's a big deal. It's a really big deal. So, uh, Stephen. Yeah, Andrea asked, can you clarify again the difference between the Lord's, or excuse me, the Last Supper and the Lord's Supper? Yes, Andrea, thank you. The Last Supper specifically was integrated around the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread and was designed to prepare his disciples for his death. The Lord's Supper is something that formed uh, predominantly because of. Pentecost and the enthusiastic meal sharing that we see in the book of Acts uh, that took place daily. And Paul's brand new word, Lord's Supper. How many times is the word Lord's Supper found in the New Testament? Only once. And that's it. And our common perspective about the Lord's Supper is from Paul, not the synoptics. They're two separate events. And the Lord's Supper has a lot to do with what is known as the Agape Feast. The Agape Feast. I know the hour is getting so late and there's a lot here. By the way, Edlisa and I went to a, a full Greek Orthodox service in Massachusetts several years ago. And you know what they did? They wanted us to leave. Yeah. We were foreigners. We were outsiders. We, uh, we were not members. They let us know that we would not be participating. That's how holy they took it. Yeah. And we'll talk about that too. All right, anybody else? I think, Chris, as you pointed out, is just be approached with reverence. Absolutely. You know, whether it's Oreos and milk, it's reverence. Yeah. And that comes from the heart. It's a heart issue, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, it's so good. You remember what you think about. If you look at the context of the Lord's Supper, before he's talking about bad stuff, after he's talking about bad stuff. Yeah. Way you you view Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. Pop quiz. Let's see. You guys are theologically on point. If we're going to take it reverentially and seriously, 
on the terms that the Apostle Paul defined, what are we going to pay most close attention to when we take the bread and the wine? What's that? No. Yes, your relationships. You really want to take it reverentially and take it in a holy manner. The gut check is how are your relationships? Thank you, the hour's late. You have been so kind. And I knew this was going to be a challenge for us. And, and, and you know, it's been so fun to go to Genesis. I wanted to go right into Exodus. But we need to, to deal with this. You know, the, the Lord has given the church two ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Uh, uh, other traditions would call it sacraments, of baptism and the Lord's Supper. And we'll, we'll, we'll dig in. There's so much to learn. We need to talk about the holy kiss and the Lord's Supper. There's so much to talk about. And we have so much to learn. Uh, I want to pray over you. And ask for God's favor over these things. Lord. Uh, we're going we're gonna to get ready to sing. And we are going to get ready. To take the bread. And take the cup. And I ask that we. We bring to you. Our hearts. Full transparency. Under the burden of repentance and under the burdens of burden of grace. And that we love you with all our hearts. And as you have commanded that we love our neighbor as ourselves, that we love others. And I ask that you have mercy on us, O God, according to your steadfast love. Thank you so much for the way that you loved us and your flesh willingly offered as a broken sacrifice in your blood. In the name of your son, Jesus, I pray. Amen.